Hello, everyone. Amelia Taylor-Hockberg, Arcanex Editorial Manager here. The interview you're about to hear was recorded as part of Arcanex's first-ever live podcasting event series, Next Up, held at Jai and Jai Gallery in Los Angeles's Chinatown. As we ease into Season 2 of our podcast, we'll be releasing over four hours of interviews and discussions from Next Up. Stay tuned to hear more about an exciting change to our shows this season and enjoy this interview from Next Up. So, John, thank you so much for taking the time to come out and talk with us. Thanks for having me. Um, I wanted you to maybe begin by just asking you about your material research process and what it is your goals are in that to uh, build your practice around it. Um, I mean, I, I think for our practice, we're fairly uh, mundane when it comes to material research. I mean, we deal actually much more with complex sites than uh, complex materials, but at the same time, the issues with those sites that are largely hillside in Los Angeles and look from the first glance to be impossible to build on actually require a lot of understanding of um, you know the basic materials of architecture, concrete, wood, steel, those types of things. And I think those have actually, because we are very familiar with those materials now, having done seven projects in the last two years on sites like that, uh, we are now starting to branch out and look at um, performative materials that could begin to challenge the spec typology that we've been working with. So what, can you describe some of those experiments? Well, right now, um, we're actually looking at several different um, types of uh, plasticizers, and those uh, that has to do a little bit with concrete, but it also has to do with um, uh, CNC milling and, and prefabrication and trying to develop uh, ideas about cornices, because we found a kind of loophole in the building code that would allow us to take a project uh, for a developer that was otherwise fairly mundane and give it a kind of uh, giant um, wig in the form of a cornice. And so we're experimenting now in the office with different materials that might make up that cornice. And, you know, we look back all the way back at Sullivan with his skyscrapers and how they were using highly trained uh, stonemasons to do uh, ornate face work on the, the tops of these, these skyscrapers in Chicago that no one would ever see. But um, ultimately were the sort of... Um, finishing touches to these otherwise early modernist structures. So what do you imagine those additions, if no one is actually going to be experiencing them, say, on the street level or on the urban level, what kind of impact do you think they're having other than on your own process? Well, I mean, I think I think for us, um, they're actually in your face because the, the cornice on the backside of the house um, and a cornice in house... Um, is sort of, uh, they don't really go together. You don't often hear that. You hear a cornice and skyscraper maybe. Um, but uh, we're actually sort of looking at how one view is perceived from the surrounding hills in Silver Lake, and then another view is perceived at the street level, which it's a, at street it's one story, in the back um, it is uh, three to four stories. So it has a different way you perceive this, this graphic uh, material element. And your firm, Urban Operations, is based in Silver Lake, correct? It is. That's correct. What would you say is the relationship uh, between the firm and the urban situation of Silver Lake? Well, um, and, and actually, I have to give a dis disclosure. Um, I live in Silver Lake, but our office just moved to Boyle Heights, so I should be sort of <gasps> propping up the new neighborhood, which, you know, it's like we're, we're now in Boyle Heights. Um, but, uh, you know, we've been in Silver Lake for 10 years practicing and, and engaging with uh, local projects there, and I think... Um, 
you know, for us, it, it's always been an interesting neighborhood because it has such a rich modernist history with regard to Schindler, Neutra, Gregory Ayn, Raphael, Suriano, Lloyd Wright. I could keep going on and on and on and on. But it also has one of the most dynamic sort of uh, topographies in the city and that you have extremely difficult terrain. And for architects, I think that since uh, the 20th, early 20th century has really posed some challenges with regards to, to structural technology, material technology, et cetera. So if I may ask, why the move out of Silver Lake? Uh, it's complicated, actually. Um, we were in a house that I designed and built in 2005 that had a live workspace. And my family grew, and it became impossible to have an office anymore. And so I separated, cleaved the office from the, the domestic space. And, and then Boyle Heights was the logical landing point, because it's sort of um, going through some changes, urban changes that Silver Lake went through, I think, probably 20 years ago, and has actually an equally fascinating series of housing typologies and, and site typologies that um, exist on flatland, but also are incredibly uh, dynamic in the way that they create urban space. So maybe backing up a little bit, you have your master's in architecture from SciArc, correct? That's correct. How have you received overall in the past of um, having founded this firm now almost 10 years ago. How do you relate to your architecture education now versus when you did when you were in it? Well, I'm, I'm actually I'm full-time faculty at SIARC right now, and um, it's been interesting to come back to the school over 10 years from when I graduated and sort of see the changes that took place over different directors, uh, first with Eric Owen Moss and now with Hernandi Alonso being the new director. And I think it's been sort of an interesting journey in the sense that it's what brought me to Los Angeles. I came out here partly because of Neil Denari, but also partly because of SciArc being this uh, space of continual experimentation and practice. And um, at the time when I came out here, it was still the, and this sounds a little strange, the LA riots, I think, were still a little fresh in everybody's mind. It, it hadn't been 10 years in 1999 when I came out here uh, since it, the Los Angeles riots. So I think people were really engaged with urban issues, which is why I was, came out here. And I think that with regard to SIARC has, has sort of changed with the city and the, the priorities of the institution have also sort of, I think, um, grown up with the city of L.A. as it's become a different place than it was uh, almost 20 years ago. So what about uh, pedagogically? Did you notice trends happening? Was it, you came to L.A. for things outside of SIARC's? specific pedagogy, or was that also something that drew you out here? Um, I mean, I'd read Mike Davis's City of Courts, and it's brought, partly what brought me out, out to L.A., because it was, as a young designer uh, looking at graduate schools, I was looking graduate schools primarily on the East Coast, and the schools weren't engaging with urban issues in the same way that SIARC was, or that, you know, those cities that they were based in weren't posing the same challenges that L.A. was posing at the time. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's interesting because as L.A. has gotten, in many people's opinions, more gentrified and more generic in the way that it's, it's become like a lot of other cities, it still retains this residue of uh, chaos and urban complexity that I've, I've not yet witnessed anywhere else in the world. Do you think that's why students are coming to SciArc now? Definitely. I mean, it's not just because the school actually attracts some of the most talented academics, but it also has to do with the fact that the student body wants to be in Los Angeles because there's there's still like so many unanswered questions and it has I think one of arguably one of the most um, dynamic art art scenes in the world right now and I think that that feeds into SIRC what's going on there if you look at the thesis work it's not just informed by the pedagogy of practice but it's also form, informed by the pedagogy of aesthetic representation and I think that a lot of the people that are 
teaching in the graduate program right now are feeding off of the sort of influx of artists that are coming to LA and, and working and, and um, putting their, their work on the walls and galleries and museums. So what, in your opinion, and um, speak specifically to SIARC or just in general, what do you see as the opportunities arising in uh, new architectural pedagogy around virtual realities? I don't, I'm not sure exactly whether you use it yourself or have specific uh, projects that relate to it, but how you see your students responding to it and um, your own ideas about it. I mean, our practice in some ways is it's, we're, we're sort of split between a research side and a practice side, and the practice side is fairly standard with respect to architecture. We, we deal with very dynamic sites, but we approach them as practitioners, uh, and we're working for largely a development client base. So we have very, a very hard task to follow and that they have very serious budgets. And so we also, in our, in our sort of uh, cultural practice within the office, we look at uh, larger issues impacting the city. They don't quite ever touch on virtual reality, but we've done projects in the past that examine the types of digital devices and, and languages such as RFID tags and QR codes and how those kind of inform urbanism and representation within architecture. Uh, but I think with regards to virtual reality, it's interesting because they're at SciArc and other institutions, um, in the United States and in, in Europe, you see a lot of projects, uh, graduate students embracing virtual reality as a form of both expression and as uh, exploration. But I think it's interesting because the projects that I've seen, not just at SIRC, but at other places, seem to have not yet uh, embraced the kind of freedom that virtual reality offers. I think those students are still trying to ply the waters of architectural space in the traditional sense. And I think that for those of us who grew up in Generation X and we're reading Neuromancer, we want the sort of virtual reality that William H. Gibson was proposing, which is a kind of urban virtual reality, and that you're no longer talking about the space of the building, but you're talking about the space of the city. And that, I think, is really where the frontier of virtual reality lies. It's this space that's urban, not second life urban, but like urban in a way that our minds spatially can't comprehend and that we can navigate that only through the technology because it's the sort of interface between our brains and this other space, this other place that we are still searching for. So none of your students have been able to get to the point of that, but there's still a focus on pure renderings of, uh, say, a a a, uh, interior space. Is that kind of more of the focus that they're tending towards? Um, Actually, I think in within architectural education, the sort of interior renderings are probably the weakest point in architectural pedagogy anywhere. I've yet to see outside of maybe um, some selected projects at SIARC and the Bartlett, students who are imagining through technology um, interior space. Largely it has to do with objects within a larger city escape. But that said, I think that the projects I have seen both at SIARC and other, other institutions that are exploring these topics, are they are divorcing themselves from the sort of standards of the profession and looking more back, you know, a couple thousand years Paranasi and imagining the dynamics of what this interior space could be like in uh, sort of another world, in another environment. And I think that's where VR actually comes in handy because you can sort of divorce yourself from uh, the standards of handrails and stairs and all the stuff that gets in the way of, of figuring out how do you begin to pleasure the senses with regards to internal space. And, and that's the students that are doing that haven't accomplished it yet, but they're definitely trying to hitting at the, the glass, trying to figure out how to get into that, that room and figure out what is that frontier? What does it look like? And how do we, how do we define the language? So as soon as we can manage to collapse all of that architectural history into one convenient consumption base, how would you, as the last question that we have for you, how would you predict in the future 
thinking about these ideas of virtual realities and new means of, of renderings. Well, how do you imagine architecture having an effect on the idea of cultural production and its ability to do so? Next question. I think really it comes down to sort of something I said earlier, which is that it's not so much about the immediate space, it's about the larger urban condition. I mean, this is really the next frontier for architects. It's not about the building object in the city, the thing as something with things around it. It's more about the space of the pedestrian, the space of the, the cultural interaction and how those begin to feed into technology, whether it be cell phones, RFID tags, um, you know, it could go, go on and on, all the different types of technology, but it really is about that space informing how we view our urban environment, which is essentially how we're going to, I think, develop as a species over the next hundred years. Great. Perfect thing to end on. Thank you all so right. much, John. Thanks. <laughs>